Hi, welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. I'm Jonathan Brack. And I'm Charles Williams. Charles, last week we were talking about the church, the early church, slowly forming their own identity distinct from uh, Judaism and how the the Jewish revolt against uh, the Roman Empire uh, sort of helped solidify that and force that. And this week we're going to move more into a Christian uh, persecution, right? Right. Okay, right. Well, well, tell us where we are in history as far as uh, our trek through the early church. Yeah, what we're going to look at is... Uh, t- this episode is we're going to provide a brief overview for that which provides the backdrop for what we're going to talk about for the coming weeks, um, that of the persecution of the church. One of the things to keep in mind is that until we get to the year 313, persecution is going to be sitting in the backdrop of everything we talk about in the coming weeks. So we don't want to divorce this episode from coming episodes. It's not like we're talking about persecution and then, okay, on to the next thing. This is right. going to be kind of the matrix within which and the grid within which we um, operate and talking about other issues that emerge and develop and spin from this. Um, one of the things that we talked about last week was the fact that, as you mentioned, Christianity comes into its own, as its mm. own separate social entity. Right. Um, and because of the split between Judaism and Christianity, largely as a result of uh, the, the discontinuity that the Christianity sees with the Old Testament in terms of uh, the sacrifices, the rituals, uh, now that they worship on Sunday, things of that sort, and the fact that, as you said, the, the Jews end up uh, revolting against the Roman Empire uh, in the year 66, um, what we see is that Christianity is no longer afforded the same exemptions um, that Judaism had been afforded, right. namely, you know, the worship of the emperor or, or the, paying tribute to the emperor's genius is, is one way in which mm-hmm. it will be put in, in some of the early literature. Um, and so in a large, to a large extent, Christianity kind of falls into the crosshairs of the Roman Empire. They end up getting blamed for a lot of things. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things that we need to keep in mind and talk about early church persecution is that it's not continuous. Mm. Uh, it's not something that happens nonstop all the okay. way until 313. What We need to emphasize the fact that it is sporadic and localized, at mm. least until the year 250. Um, it is intense, and it's very violent, don't get me wrong. Yes. Um, but when we want to assess the reasons for why Christians are persecuted in the Roman Empire, we have to say that the reasons vary. Mm. Because uh, even according to the early church, Augustine, for example, in City of God, um, I think it's like Book 18, uh, in kind of giving an overview of the history of the church, um, he breaks the persecution up, uh, persecution, persecution of the church up into at least ten distinct wow. persecution phases. Uh, he says that it, it typifies uh, the ten plagues of Egypt. Is right. how he put in other uh, early church historians will we'll do the same thing. It yes, kind of okay. functions as a guidepost for them. Um, but what we want to do is we'll probably look at three or four major church persecutions just to give you an idea of the various reasons why Christians end up getting persecuted uh, up until, again, uh, the year 313, where Christianity, Christianity finally becomes legalized as a uh, state religion. Not the only religion, but just becomes legalized as one of the um, many legal state uh, legal religions in, in the Roman Empire. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, the first Roman emperor to persecute the church was that of Nero in the mid-60s. Around the year 64, for instance, uh, Romans up catching on fire. Uh, 
long story short, Nero needs a scapegoat to he needs to pass the buck on to somebody. So he blames the Christians because they're already not a popular group; they're a minority. So you just kind of throw the blame on them, you know, and his you know reputation is secure. And so um, the Roman emperor, or not Roman emperor, the uh, Roman historian Tacitus. Uh, ends up writing about this. Of course, Tacitus isn't too big a fan of Nero. Uh, not many people were f- a big fan <laughs> of Nero, actually. Uh, Christians end up getting wrapped in animal hides and thrown to ravenous wolves, for instance. Um, Nero will have other Christians crucified. Um, according to church tradition, both Peter and Paul are executed in Rome at the hands of Nero. Um and probably the most graphic instance of, of what Nero does is uh, he'll basically use Christians as tiki torches uh, for his garden for these nighttime parties, um, again, according to Tacitus. Um, but – and that's really the first instance that we see Christians being persecuted um, by the Romans. Um, that it, it's, it's very brief, lasts from 64 to 68, and it looks like it was only confined to Rome and the surrounding area. Um, but it is persecution nonetheless, and, and people did lose their lives. Um, so at this point, there's nothing really theological for right. why they're being persecuted. It's mainly because they're being used as a scapegoat. Right. In this instance, yeah, it's a, they're just a, a political pawn. They're a scapegoat. Um, what we see uh, up into, between Nero and you know the, the accession of Decius as the emperor in 250, um, we'll see, again, sporadic— uh, uh, persecutions made by various Roman emperors for different reasons. Um, the the next you know major persecution we see comes in the year eighty under the reign of uh, the emperor Domitian. Uh, it's under Domitian's reign or Domitian, some people will pronounce it, um, that he exiles John the Apostle to the uh-huh. island of Patmos. You know to kind of give you some type of historical context. Um, in the early second century, there's a Roman emperor by the name of Trajan who will persecute Christians. Um, it's kind of interesting. There's there's actually um, evidence we have of, of a letter written by the governor of Bithynia, which is located in uh, central Turkey. Uh, this Bithynian, emperor, uh, Bithynian governor, his name was Pliny, uh, ends up writing a letter to Trajan basically saying, hey, I'm executing these Christians. I don't have a problem doing it. I'm just kind of curious as to why because they're not really doing anything wrong or illegal. Uh, and Trajan's response is kind of off the cuff. Oh, you're right to persecute them. If you capture Christians and they won't, you know, renounce the faith, execute them. But don't go out of your don't go out of your way to find Christians. So this isn't, you know, the Roman Empire isn't, you know, using up all its funds to hunt down Christians at this right. point in time. However, if you get caught, it's still illegal. I mean, it's it's on the books as being illegal, uh, but again, it's not the the prime objective of the Roman Empire. However, there are Christians who are getting. Um, executed, persecuted. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, for example, we'll talk about in a couple weeks, uh, one of the early church fathers. He's actually a disciple of uh, John the Apostle. He ends up getting executed under Trajan's reign. Um, probably the, the next big emperor uh, that we talk about um, is Marcus Aurelius, the famous Stoic um, philosopher emperor. Um, he would throw Christians to the lions in, in, in the midst of these gladiator fights and arenas, but he actually kind of resents the fact because uh, he claims that Christians are too theatrical mm. uh, in, in their willingness to be thrown to the lions. Too I think, emotional and too right. almost too willing to go. Right. I mean, and, and again, this coming from a Stoic philosopher, <laughs> right. you know, the fact that you're supposed to endure everything with, you know, um, you know, w- without any type of emotion. He sees Christians as being too emotional. Um, wow. 
it's just kind of an interesting side note that he makes. But uh, under Marcus Aurelius, um, Polycarp, uh, the famous bishop of Smyrna, another disciple of the Apostle John, um, ends up getting martyred. We'll talk mm-hmm. about him in a couple weeks. Um, but we don't give the impression that it's just adult men who are being persecuted. Uh, men, uh, women, children are all being uh, persecuted uh, in various parts of the country, right. of the Roman Empire. Carthage in North Africa, Lyon, the city in France, the city of Rome, for instance. We have uh, written uh, eyewitness accounts of people who've witnessed uh, martyrdoms taking place at the hands of mobs, the hands of uh, uh, Roman soldiers, uh, and, and things of that sort. I, I think you... Yeah, I, I think we can uh, read a few of them. We won't read, uh, of course, all the accounts, but we'll just highlight a few things. This one is uh, uh, an account from uh, Perpetua and Felicitas. Um, and it reads, uh, once again... That comes my, to the beginning of the 3rd century, right? And, yes. Yeah. 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 So this is 203. Um, and... The account reads, For the young woman, however, the devil had prepared a mad heifer. This was an unusual animal, but it was chosen that their sex might be matched with that of the beast. So they were stripped naked, placed in nets, and thus brought out into the arena. Even the crowd was horrified when they saw that one was a delicate young girl, and the other was a woman fresh from childbirth, uh, when the milk still dripping from her breasts. And so they were brought back again and dressed and unbelted tunics. And immediately as the contest was coming to a close, a leopard was let loose. Uh, and after one bite, Seratus was so drenched, that's an, another person also being persecuted, um, Seratus was so drenched with blood that he came away. Uh, the mob roared in witness to his second baptism, well washed, well washed, for well washed indeed was one who had been bathed in this manner. Then he said to the soldier, Hudens, goodbye, remember me, and remember the faith. These things should not disturb you, but rather strengthen you. And after that, uh, uh, shortly after, he was thrown unconscious with the rest in the usual spot to have his throat cut. But the mob asked that their bodies be brought out into the open, that their eyes might be the guilty witnesses of the sword that pierced their flesh. And so the martyrs got up and went to the spot, of their own accord as the people wanted them to. And kissing one another, they sealed their martyrdom with the ritual kiss of peace. The others took the sword in silence, and without moving, especially Saratus, who being the first to climb the stairway, was the first to die. For once again, he was waiting for Perpetua. However, uh, Perpetua, however, had yet to taste more pain. She screamed as she was struck on the bone. Then she took the trembling hand of the young gladiator and guided it to her throat. It was as though so great a woman, feared as she was by the unclean spirit, could not be dispatched unless she herself were willing. So what's you know what's interesting about that account is just the willingness for even you know a young woman and a mother who just gave birth to a child to to go and to be martyred. Right and. It's kind of confusing what happens there at the end with Perpetua as she's struck on the bone. We don't know if that was, you know, a missed blow to the head or yeah. But I'm not sure. At the end of that, she seems to, according to the account, guide the hand of the gladiator to her throat, um, which is it's fascinating. It's, it's yeah. tough to think about. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, there, 
well, again, we'll talk about another martyr in a couple weeks by the name of Polycarp, but he actually requests or it says you, you know, he's going to end up getting burned at the stake and basically says, you don't have to tie me up to the stake because I'm not going anywhere. Long story short. Uh, and so he just stands there and takes it. Um, you know, and so th- the way we think about persecution and the way the early church thought about persecution, two different things. It's something that they seem to, to approach with gladness, um, not in basically a stoic way, but in, you know, something that they saw uh, as, um, you know, I, th- I think one way it was, it was put by, by one historian is that they suffered with gladness. Seeing this, this a juxtaposition of those two things happening uh, simultaneously, you know, and when we think of martyrdom or persecution and suffering, it's not just getting thrown to the lions. They weren't; I mean, they were definitely getting thrown to the lions. They're yes. definitely getting set on fire. They're getting their throat slit. Men, women, children. I think that same account has a 15-year-old boy, or maybe it's a different mm-hmm. account yes. um, getting uh, executed. But there's also the um, Suffering that comes with social ostracization. You know, if anybody has done any studies on Holocaust literature, World War II, uh, we see that the process of persecution uh, of Hitler's empire against the Jews was not something that took place overnight, but it was a gradual, you know, turning up of the fire where there's these, it's a gradual process where a particular part of society is kind of excluded from society in public events. Um, for example, you know, um, there's another martyrdom account. I'm going to read just the opening paragraph. It's um, the martyrdom of a series of Christians in Lyons, which takes place in France in the year 177. Right after this happens, um, the, the churches of Vienna and Lyon end up writing an account of, of everything that happened to them, and they send a letter to the churches in uh, basically in, in Turkey, saying this is what's going on here to strengthen the faith of what's going on, you know, What's happening to y'all over there? Uh, and, and this is how they open the, uh, the letter. The servants of Christ residing at Vienna and Lyon in Gaul um, to the brethren throughout Asia and Phrygia. Uh, Phrygia is in, located in north, the northern part of Turkey. Who have the same faith and hope of redemption as ourselves. Peace, grace, and glory from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. We cannot accurately tell or describe in detail the magnitude of the distress in this region the fury of the heathen against the saints, or the sufferings of the blessed witnesses. For with all his strength, the enemy fell upon us, giving us a foretaste of his future, unrestrained activity among us. He used every means to familiarize and train his own subjects against the servants of God. Not only were we excluded from houses, baths, and the forum, but it was forbidden for any one of us to appear in any place whatsoever." So what we see here is, again, there's an exclusion from public activity and public life. If you read First and Second Peter, even in the New Testament, suffering is talked about in these terms as well. It's not just making it to the arena. Yeah. Suffering takes place, you know, if you're a high school student, you know, getting made fun of for the faith. Mm-hmm. You, know, um, you know, being objects of mockery and ridicule um, are also seen as part of suffering, even in the early church. Um, so we just, you know, we don't want to... Um, create the early church as some type of golden age where everything is happening is great and glorious. Um, but see how there is certain relevance. There's continuity and discontinuity in, in, in every uh, period of time. And that we can see somehow, of course, Christians in the West, we have it good, but there is some aspects of suffering that you can still see. Um, you know, again, we want to have this apply for high school students. You know, being a Christian, you don't have to have, a, you don't have to develop a martyr complex to be a faithful Christian. You know, the fact is, is that, we see here uh, of, of Christians suffering with gladness. 
you know, not saying, hey, look at me, look how much I'm suffering, but just, you know, identifying with the Savior um, through uh, the, the things that you have to endure. You know, uh, very early on in, in Christianity, even in First and Second Timothy, you know, there, there's a close association between Christianity and suffering. They're seen as inseparable. You know, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, is what Paul writes. Um, and so we should see this, that the church willingly embraces this as part of their identity. Yeah. Um, What's interesting about all this is um, this theme of you know, being ostracized and also being you know, uh, martyred, that you don't get a lot of literature of once we have the numbers and the strength to rise up right. and take over the state— Right. Then we can put this to an end. Right. It's a respecting of the rulers and suffering gladly. Right. And uh, knowing that the Lord holds the, the keys to who he will put into power and at what time. Right. So it's it's fascinating that regard for our modern day. Yeah, there's no there's no language of like let's take Rome for Jesus. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh uh the the language is much sense. much different in that in that particular sense. Yeah. Right. Um the idea is very much of we're going to be the best citizens. Again, we'll talk about Justin Martyr, uh, another early Christian in, in the mid-second century in a couple of weeks. And uh, in his first apology, his first uh, one of the first major apologetic works we see emerge in, uh, in uh, Christian history, he writes to the Roman emperor this lengthy defense of the Christian faith and says, why are you persecuting us? We make the best citizens of the state. Again, going back to the, the letter that we talked about um, from the, uh, the governor of Bithynia to the Roman emperor Trajan, saying... I have no problem executing Christians, whatever, but I don't really understand why we're doing that. They get up early in the morning and they meet before sunset. They worship their God named Christ, uh, and they promise that they're not going to commit adultery or fraud and that they're going to be good citizens. He's like, I'm not really sure why we're executing them. Again, again he's like, I have no problem with it, no big deal, but they're not doing anything treacherous. you know. And, and so I think the idea of being a faithful witness for Christ uh, in the early church is much different than... Uh, how you see some of the rhetoric being played out uh, in in kind of contemporary evangelical circles at times. That's such a fascinating account because you read it and it sort of reads like, uh, you know, like a detective going to figure out like what's this evil cult? Yeah. And what are they up to? And yeah. What's the mischief? What's the right. high-handed treachery that they're that they're committing? Right. It's like, all right, I figured it out. Here it is. Check yeah. it out. They are. Waking up before dawn, right, and singing a song to Christ, yeah, and vowing not to be adulterers, right, and right. not to steal anything, right. <laughs> it's yeah, just, it's it is fascinating. It is fascinating, and so again, when we want to say that you know persecution in the early church is sporadic and localized, we don't want to diminish the intensity of when it does actually take place, and the fact that when we say it's localized. It's localized in different places. Again, we see this mass persecution of Christians in Lyon, France in 177, um, the, the execution of Perpetua and Felicity in um, some other uh, martyrs in Carthage in North Africa in 203. Of course, um, Christians being thrown to the lions in, in the gladiatorial arenas in Rome uh, intermittently. Um, th- this is an ongoing process that we see happening in major cities, and they're happening at the hands of the mob. Uh, and they're happening at the hands of the Roman state and with the approval of emperors. Even if, uh, again, it's not uh, an official endorsed policy, it, you know, Christianity is outlawed and it just kind of happens for fun. You know, uh, it, it just kind of 
seen how it is. Um, the, the first time we actually see Christian persecution go empire-wide, um, however, is in the year 250 under the Roman Emperor Decius. Um, basically what happens is the Roman Emperor begins mandating um, that everybody not only sacrifices to the Emperor's genius, in other words, they have to worship the Emperor as a deity, but you also have to have basically a proof of purchase that you've done so. So you have to go down to the local, you know, the the local temple, pay money, you know, offer, or you might not have to pay money, I'm not sure, but you, you, you offer a sacrifice to the emperor, and then you get a certificate saying that you've done so. Um, yeah, certificate of sacrifice. Right, right. You, you got to have a receipt, um, you know, and of course, Christians refuse to do this. Of course, the, the, we have to keep in mind the sad reality of the fact is that there are Christians who end up recanting the faith. Yes. Even temporarily. Mm-hmm. Um, this will create a problem we're going to talk about in, in a in a particular episode is what do you do with somebody who recants the faith in a moment of weakness, recants, and then realizes, what was I thinking? And once reentry into the church, how do you deal with that as a pastoral issue? Uh, and this particular issue ends up dividing the church. A group of people will actually break away from the church um, over this very, this very fact. Um, so again, that's one of the things we want to keep in mind is that persecution uh, is going to form the backdrop to things we talk about in future, future episodes. Um, and it creates pestoral problems. What do you do if a pastor ends up recanting the faith? What ends up happening, um, for example, a, a question is going to be raised, the legitimacy of the baptisms he's administered. Do you need to be rebaptized? Is your salvation dependent in some part off of the, uh, uh, the holiness of the pastor or the preacher? Um, these are questions that are going to be raised and for, force, ends up forcing the early church to think about their ecclesiology. So the rebaptism question is not necessarily first a question about the individual, but if your pastor yeah. baptized you, yeah, and your pastor recants, yeah, was that legitimate? Do you need to be rebaptized? Right. Wow. Right. Yeah, and that's an issue that that uh, we see with two different schisms: the Novation and then later the Donatist schisms, which Augustine will address. The the latter, we'll, we'll talk about him. We'll spend three weeks talking about him. Um, after Decius. Uh, of course, that, well, that persecution only lasts for about a year or so, from 250 to 251. Uh, the next major persecution, is known as the Great Persecution, comes under um, the auspices of the Roman Emperor Diocletian. Um, kind of to give you an idea of the social context for why persecution ends up happening at this point in time, uh, the Roman Empire has kind of overextended itself. Um, it's kind of crippled by economic pressures. Uh, there's a lot of inflation. Um, they've overextended their boundaries. They have too many. They've made too many enemies along the border. Uh, the Roman Empire is trying to ex- expand its way into what's modern day Germany. Um, they're getting a whole lot of pushback, but they're they don't have enough soldiers, enough troops to kind of fortify the boundaries. Well, um, of course, you have to increase taxes to pay for these troops, so on and so forth. So it's just th- there's a lot of problems going on. So Diocletian ends up issuing a series of reforms. Uh, he ends up uh, dividing the Roman Empire into two administrative halves. Each half is going to have its own uh, its own senior emperor, and then um, to kind of create a certain stense, sense of stability uh, to the Roman Empire, because there have been a lot of Roman emperors who've been assassinated. Um, each existing emperor will basically appoint a successor who will kind of be kind of a CEO in training, um, uh, kind of like a, a co-emperor that will rule alongside him. So if the, once the senior em- emperor retires or dies. Another one can fill in his place without there be any without there being any gaps. So he establishes what's known as the tetrarchy: um, a, a junior and senior emperor in uh, the west, and a junior and senior emperor in the in the east. 
tetrarchy meaning four, so there's a rule of four emperors. He, of course, is the kind of the senior of these four emperors. Well, one of the things, and again, all this is to kind of rejuvenate the Roman Empire, to bring right. it back to its glory days. But one of the things that he wants to do in the midst of this process is uh, re- restore the old Roman religion wow. back to the empire. Um, he sees he thinks that one of the reasons why um, the economy has become crippled is because the Roman gods have abandoned the Romans because so many people have converted to Christianity. Wow. Um, and so what uh, Diocletian does is he mandates an assault on Christians. So in, in large part, this this does have theological significance, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, as well as economic and social. Christians are being blamed for the economic woes of the Roman Empire. Right. Um, and so uh, – Thus begins what's known as the Great Persecution, and this lasts for about 10 years. Um, we'll see the destruction of churches, uh, Bibles, um, and of course, you know, Christians will end up being uh, thrown to the lions and uh, executed as well. Um, it's only after Diocletian retires, well, what, basically what happens is Diocletian retires, and the four remaining tetrarchs, um, including his successor, a civil war emerges among the four of these guys. Uh, one of those uh, ends up being Constantine. And in 313, Constantine, more or less, long story short, is able to defeat uh, the others. And at the Battle of Milvian Bridge in 312, uh, claims ascendancy to the Roman throne as the, um, as the Roman emperor. Uh, and then in the following year, 313, he legalizes Christianity because his mother was a, was a Christian. Um, and his father had been sympathetic to Christians, although I, I don't think his father himself was a converted Christian. But in 313, we finally see Christianity legalized. It doesn't become the official religion of the Roman Empire. That doesn't happen until the year 380 under Theodosius. Um, but Christianity does become legalized for the first time in its existence. Um, bringing it into the persecution creates a series of problems. Um, you know, in thinking about advantages and, and disadvantages of... Uh, of persecution. First, let's talk about the, the advantages. Um, first off, there's a, the psychological impact. Persecution kind of forges this social identity, the sense of solidarity among Christians throughout the whole of the Roman Empire. Again, think in 177, the fact that the churches in France are writing a letter to the churches in Turkey. Yes. Saying, we're enduring all this persecution. We're writing this letter to you to be encouraged and strengthened. Right, and prepare for the future. We're all... right. And it's interesting that, yeah, the, the, the letter isn't, you know, um, Christianity has been legalized and everything's hunky-dory. Let that be your encouragement. No, look at all the martyrs who've been martyred. This is your strength and encouragement. We're identifying ourselves with the Savior. Um, that's seen as, as their, uh, their, their comfort in life and death, you know. So there's the psychological impact. I, I would consider that to be an, an advantage in helping form a, a, a distinct social identity for the church. Where they see um, persecution uh, uh, and suffering being part and parcel of a Christian's identity, um, and also we see Christianity flourish during this time. Again, um, people uh, end up converting uh, to Christianity when they see uh, the Christians' reaction to persecution. Right? Christians are suffering silently and with gladness. They're not having to jump up and down, yelling, "Hey, look at me! Look at me! Look at me!" Um, time and time again, if you read the martyrdom literature, it's the fact that the opinion of greater society starts turning in favor of Christians because of the fact that they're suffering silently and with gladness and willingly associating themselves with the Messiah. Um, 
I think that says something about Christian testimony of not, you know, it's real easy to become self-righteous in the midst of persecution. You can see that time and time again in, in various ways. Um, but to see, uh, th- I think there's a proper and improper response to suffering, not to, to you know, denigrate people who suffer, um, but there is a proper response to suffering and there's an improper response. And we see both in the early church, but um, the proper response, suffering silently with gladness and with joy and embracing it because it's part of your identity, uh, was seen as in and of itself a testimony um, to, to the truth of Christianity. So those are some of the advantages, some of the disadvantages. Uh, I think ultimately it leads to a creation of a, a two-tiered Christianity. Okay. If you read um, Paul's letter to the church of Corinth, you know, 1 Corinthians, he addresses the entire church as being saints, set apart yeah. by God. And these are people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. There's a problem of incest. There's yeah. all these issues kind of ravaging the church. Or the, the um, saints. Yeah, the saints struggling with sexual issues. Yeah, to the saints, I don't know if I should come out with you a stick right. or not. So. Yeah, yeah he's a, he addresses it to the saints. Yeah. Um, it's a term applied to all Christians. However, um, by, you know, I'd say, the middle of the third century, end of the third century, um, the term saint ends up being a term only reserved for those who had suffered persecution. Those who, whether you were a martyr or whether, you know, you had kind of gotten beaten half to death but somehow survived that, the term saint becomes applied only to those who had kind of done something, had proven their worth by suffering for Jesus. Well, remember, keep in, keep in mind the fact that Christians aren't suffering everywhere. This is localized and sporadic. So we do with the Christians who are being faithful, but they just happen to be blessed in a particular town that's not persecuting Christians. Yeah. Um, there ends up being a social distinction being made. Uh, Tertullian, for example, an early church father, will say, you know, um, will go so far as, well, I can't remember if it's Tertullian, so don't quote me on that, but there is one early, early church father who basically said, if you don't die for the faith, you're not a Christian. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it was Tertullian, come to think of it, but it, it, so, uh, there is one who, who says that. And, and so there is a creeping in of works righteousness. Uh, and a distinction being made. And this creates a problem. Think about it. Once Christianity becomes legalized, how else are you going to prove your worth? You know, uh, in the fourth century, uh, 96% of the martyrs um, were con- may- constituted kind of the saints. You know, um, basically what we see in, in early churches, they begin, um, you know, if in your local church, you know, Billy Bob ends up getting executed you end up uh, collecting his bones uh, because he is a member of your church and you know you play him in the graveyard and you end up honoring him. And I, I think there's a certain amount of honor and dignity that comes with that. But within the first three or four centuries, it almost takes on a magical quality where there's something inherently magical about the bones and the relics of these Christians who have died for the faith. Uh, so yeah, kind of the birth of relics and... Right. Holiness idea. Right. Uh, uh, very, very pagan notion kind of yeah. creeps its way in through something that's very unpagan. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it just creates a, a series of a series of problems. And, and like I say, 96% of the people venerated as saints are martyrs. So what happens when Christianity ends up becoming legalized? You've got to find a new way to prove your worthiness as a Christian. And so we'll start seeing the rise of martyrdom, in, or not martyrdom, but uh, asceticism and monasticism in the 4th century. I, I think the fact that that jumps on the rise in the 4th century as soon as Christianity becomes legalized. Yeah. Something to think about. 
you know, where, where do we get our righteousness from? Where do we draw our righteousness from? Persecution, I think, is something that every Christian should expect in one form or another, whether or not you're getting made fun of the playground, getting made fun of on the playground in, in high school, or you're getting you know, executed like, in Eritrea. Yeah. Um, regardless of what's happening, you know, what form suffering's taken place, you know, it's, it's part of your identity as a Christian, but it's not what makes you a Christian. Mm. And I think that's something to keep in mind when we think about persecution in the early church. Yeah, that's, that's great as far as the advantages and the, the disadvantages. Um, how about we uh, read one more account of the, okay. the martyrs uh, before we close and, and conclude? Um, uh, where's this from? This is uh, Blend, uh, Blendina. Okay. Um, so what year is that? It's in uh, 177. 177, right. Um, and uh, it, it reads, After all these, on the last day of the gladiatorial shows, Blandina was again brought in along with Ponticus, a boy about 15 years of age. These two had been taken daily to the amphitheater to see the tortures which the rest endured. The authorities tried to force Blandina and Ponticus to swear by the heathen idols, but they remained steadfastly refused, so the multitude were furious against them. They had no compassion for the youth of the boy or respect for the sex of the woman. Therefore they exposed them to every terror and all the terrible sufferings and took them through every round of torture. Repeatedly they tried to compel them to swear to the idols, but it didn't work. Ponticus was encouraged by his sister. Even the heathen, heathen saw that she encouraged and strengthened him. After enduring nobly every kind of torture, he died. But the blessed Bladina, the last one left, having, like a noble mother, encouraged her children and sent them on before her victorious to the king, endured herself the same confl- conflicts. She hurried on to them with joy and exultation at her departure. It was as if she were called to a marriage supper rather than cast to the wild beasts. After she had been scourged and exposed to the wild beasts and roasted in the iron chair, she was at last enclosed in a net and cast before a bull. She was tossed by the bull, but she didn't feel the things which were happening to her. This is because of her hope and firm hold of what had been entrusted to her and her communion with Christ. Thus she also was sacrificed. The heathens themselves confessed that never among them did women endure so many and such terrible tortures. So next week we're going to talk about... Yeah, well, if the past two weeks we've looked at the external threats to the church, next week we'll begin looking at the internal threats to the church, namely that of heresies, and start having an introduction to thinking about um, the destructive nature of heresies and how that threatens the stability of the church as well. Great. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, Once again, uh, this is Faith of Our Fathers, and I'm Jonathan Brack. I'm Charles Williams. See ya. (laughs) 